From Madison, Wisconsin, World Dairy Expo presents The Dairy Show, the digital meeting place of the global dairy industry, where we sit down to talk cows, cutting edge technology, and the colored shavings. Hello and welcome back to The Dairy Show, everyone. My name is Katie Schmidt, and joining me this week on the show is Paul Bleiberg, the Senior Vice President of Government Relations at National Milk Producers Federation. So welcome to the show, Paul. Thanks, Katie. It's great to be here. Before we get into it, I'm going to have you take a minute or two here to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit more about National Milk Producers Federation. Sure. Well, thank you. So a little bit about myself. I am an upstate New York native originally. I grew up in the central part of the state and uh, have been living in Washington, D.C. for the last 15 years. I've been at National Milk for the last five years, and before that, I spent about a decade on Capitol Hill working for some now former members of Congress, two from upstate New York, one from Wisconsin, and also had a couple of years in the private sector during that time as well. So during that period of time, I got to work on everything from farm bills to trade to transportation to a whole bunch of different things that impact the dairy industry. And then I moved over to National Milk actually in January of 2016 to join the government relations team. I've been the head of the department for the last three years. And so in that time, I've been able to work on everything from the dairy margin coverage program and the 2018 farm bill to uh, ag labor policy, to the environmental issues, and then, of course, the completely unusual and upending our lives COVID-19 issues of the last year. So a little bit about National Milk. Of course, we are the trade association representing dairy co-ops throughout the country, and that means we've got farmer members in, in virtually every state, if not every state, including plenty in Wisconsin, plenty in upstate New York. Uh, we work every day on Capitol Hill with the you know, executive branch agencies on all kinds of federal policy, uh, whether that be legislative or administrative. But on any issue you can think of, again, whether it's, like I said, immigration or farm policy or trade or nutrition or labeling or the environment, we're going to be the dairy producer community voice in those conversations. Well, we love having you guys in D.C. doing work for dairy's behalf. And I think you're going to bring a lot of great insight to this conversation. So I'm going to have you cover kind of the landscape of what policymaking looks like in D.C. for those who maybe aren't quite as connected to the political world. High level, what has the past four years looked like under the Trump administration? What were some of the accomplishments and maybe what did we anticipate seeing that didn't come to fruition? So I think, you know, that probably the, the most notable uh, thing that got done or maybe two items that got done in the last four years was the 2018 Farm Bill. Obviously, it was a major success as far as overhauling the uh, dairy safety net. We worked really closely with Congress of the House and Senate Ag Committees to put that together and then work with USDA on the implementation of that. And I think we view it as a far improved program for producers than the margin protection program that preceded it. And then another significant accomplishment on the trade side was the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement uh, that was negotiated over the course of several years, and Congress played an important role there as well. And uh, that that helped us on dairy in a couple of ways. Obviously, it gave us some, some new access to the Canadian market while correcting some uh, problems we've had there in recent years, and it uh, safeguarded the critical access we've had uh, to Mexico's market. So both of those were very significant and, and I would say durable achievements because they were done with broad, you know, bipartisan buy-in, right? We have a new administration now, but the DMC program continues on and it has support from both parties. And we have, you know, broad support in, across the political spectrum for the work being done on the dairy issues in USMCA as well. So I think that is really a hallmark of the kind of policy that we think works well is the more buy-in you have on the front end, 
um, the more likely on the back end that it's going to be successful in implementation. That doesn't always happen, right? Sometimes things get done with only one party for different reasons, and we work through those. Uh, but we certainly like the the consensus building that can occur in, uh, in many situations. It's very heartening to see that you know the new president is wanting to take as much of a collaborative approach as possible on different things, and uh, and I think we'll be excited to to work with him and his team. Yeah. So talking about the new president, what are some of the big picture items that we anticipate seeing from the Biden administration and working alongside a a democratically controlled Congress? So I think a a couple of of sort of high urgency items. One is obviously COVID-19. And, uh, you know, the new administration will be implementing much of the policy that was in the last COVID relief package that included some really important dairy provisions. Uh, thanks to Senate Ag Committee Chair uh, Senator Stabenow from Michigan, we were able to get a dairy donation program into that package, which is going to really help us work with food banks to move dairy as much as we can into food insecure households. And getting that implemented is going to be a priority. Uh, some supplemental uh, help on the dairy margin coverage, getting that done, and also some improvements to the Paycheck Protection Program, uh, which was put in place last year. So implementing that package, but also passing some additional legislation that's going through Congress right now. I think we're optimistic that there'll be some additional support in that package, as we've seen for product purchases, supply chain relief, donation, things like that. There'll also be some other provisions in there on nutrition, extending some of the temporary enhancements to the SNAP program, which obviously is very important right now. So I think COVID is going to be front and center for a little while, both on on legislative and on executive policy matters. We're going to see a, a major focus there. On other issues, I think a big issue right out the gate this year is going to be climate change. I think uh, you have a broad interest in Congress and in the administration on what can be done on climate. This this issue has come up in obviously past years legislatively, but it hasn't achieved enough consensus uh, to for much to get done. And I think there's going to be a lot of interest on the part of what can be done to you know, account for the work being done in agriculture, obviously in dairy. About a year ago, we embarked on the net zero initiative to get our carbon footprint to net zero by 2050, and also to address some of the water quality challenges that we have in different uh, different watersheds. So that's going to continue to be a priority for us in these climate conversations. And Secretary Vilsack looks to be a very good partner there, as do a lot of people in Congress and both parties. I think we're going to see a lot of really productive dialogue there and, and hope to move forward in that space. A couple of other items, you know, immigration is this sort of hope springs eternal issue. And we made some very good progress in 2019. And I think to recap for everybody, our needs in dairy are, you know, kind of a permanent legal status for our current workers and their families, which have been working on our dairy farms for a long time and are a big part of their communities and a future flow that actually works for us. The H2A guest worker ag program simply doesn't allow year round work. And that means dairy is effectively boxed out of that. So seeing that program reformed is paramount for us. And both of those objectives were achieved in broad strokes in the Farm Workforce Modernization Act that passed the House in 2019. Wasn't a perfect bill. We wanted to see some changes, but it was a bipartisan bill and it was a very good start. And like I said, it largely embodied our two main goals. I think we're hopeful to kind of pick up where we left off, get that bill through the House and kind of continue those discussions in the Senate. And then I guess the last one I'd mentioned is trade, obviously. We have major priorities there, continuing the implementation and the enforcement on USMCA, uh, seeking additional trade agreements, whether that's in Southeast Asia or with the UK, and then certainly uh, continued work. And I know in in Wisconsin, this is a top issue, the uh, protections for common food names, common cheese names is extremely important in any trade agreement that's being negotiated. And obviously, USMCA made some good strides there, has good provisions, but we want to see that as an objective really across the board. So those are some of the major items I think we expect to be tackling, both from a congressional legislative standpoint, 
but also from an administration standpoint, whether that's with the U.S. Department of Agriculture or the U.S. Trade Representative or the EPA or anywhere else. Um, there'll be certainly others, too, but that's maybe some some high level ones. And before you know it, we'll be talking about the next farm bill, which I can't even uh, can't even think about yet. But we have a little bit before we get there. Yeah, well, that's perfect. Um, those are all topics that are on my list of things for us to talk about today. So great lead in. But first, we're going to cover updates to Congress with the turnover in both the Senate and Ag, or Senate and House Ag committees. Fill us in a little bit on who left, who's coming in and what that means. Sure. So this is the first time in a while that we've had as many uh, changes to the top levels of the House and Senate Ag committees all at once. I think maybe at one point in the past, we've had two of the principals uh, turnover, but in this case, we've had three of the four. Uh, so Senator Debbie Stabenow from Michigan is returning as the chair of the Senate Ag Committee, and she's been a great friend of the dairy industry. We've worked with her during her previous time as chair and during her more recent time as the ranking member. You know, she was instrumental, not just in what I mentioned on the dairy donation program, but also the work on the CARES Act last year and, frankly, the work on dairy in the 2018 Farm Bill and the Bipartisan Budget Act. So we've got a very good uh, history of working closely with her. Now, she's going to be joined by three new people that have never been in these roles before. Uh, her ranking member is going to be Senator John Bozeman from Arkansas. Now, he's been in the Senate for just about 10 years. And actually, it's notable he defeated in 2010 then-Senate Ag Chair Blanche Lincoln from Arkansas. And so in that 10-year period, now, he has risen to the top Republican slot on the committee. So he's the ranking member. If at any point in the next few years Republicans hold the Senate, then he would be the chairman. So he would... He's fulfilling that role for his state, obviously, not the biggest dairy state, but he's somebody that's paid attention to agriculture across the board. And I think we've had a productive dialogue and working relationship with his staff over the years. So we'll look forward to getting to know them a little more closely. Now, moving across the Capitol, we have two new people leading the House Ag Committee, both very senior members, but both new to their roles. Uh, David Scott, Congressman David Scott from Georgia, he represents kind of Atlanta and some of that suburban area, is going to be the chairman of the committee. And uh, he previously chaired the Livestock and Dairy Subcommittee back in 2009 of all years, and so certainly held a number of hearings and was very much at the forefront of examining what was going wrong in the industry at the time. And so, you know, he uh, has retained many of the same folks from Chairman Peterson's team. We'll be definitely getting to know him better and working with him. Uh, his subcommittee chairman on dairy issues has continued to be Congressman Jim Costa from California, who's been in that role before, and we've long worked with Congressman Costa, so that'll be productive. And on the Republican side, we have a major shift as well. Uh, the former ranking member has retired, and Congressman G.T. Thompson from North Central Pennsylvania has stepped into that role. Now, he has been a friend of the dairy industry for quite a while. We've worked with him closely on everything from farm bill issues to school nutrition. And he came to Congress in 2009. He was a freshman member, so he's got that memory of that the dairy challenges from that first year. And now he's the... Uh, He's the ranking member. And of course, if Republicans were to hold the House in the future, he would be the chairman of the committee. So he's been a great friend of dairy and somebody we've worked closely with for a long time. His uh, subcommittee ranking member is Congressman Dusty Johnson from South Dakota, who's in his second term and we've had a chance to work with productively as well. And we'll look forward to getting to know him more closely. So a lot of new people in these lead roles. And as I said earlier, uh, you know, they, they don't have to reauthorize the Farm Bill this Congress, this two-year period. They can do some preparation work and hearings and things like that. But the, the legislation itself doesn't come due until September 30th of 2023. So that does give this group of people, again, three of the four principals are new to their roles, the chance to kind of get their bearings a little bit, which is which is certainly beneficial rather than to have a farm bill be 
being written right now when three of the four people and probably many other staff haven't been in those lead roles before. So some major change. Various new members have been added to the committees as well. Many of them reflect, you know, past states and congressional districts that have been on before. Uh, but I think we're going to be in for getting to know some good new people, both at the top level and the more junior levels of the committee. Last group to talk about before we get into the topics is the USDA. And with their reappointed uh, leadership of former Secretary Tom Vilsack back into his role as secretary again, for those listening. Uh, Today is the 17th when we're recording this. So yesterday they announced that the Senate will be hearing his confirmation on Tuesday the 23rd, which is when this is airing. So just a little bit of background for our listeners on that front. But Paul, what are we anticipating from the USDA back under Secretary Vilsack's leadership? Sure. So I think uh, think by the time listeners are hearing this, perhaps uh, Secretary Vilsack will either have been confirmed or will be almost confirmed, depending on the time of day, I suppose. But that is likely to happen next Tuesday. And I think we expect him to receive broad bipartisan support as he did the first time in, in 2009. So I think from Secretary Vilsack, we, we've worked with him for a long time, both in his previous stint as secretary and then obviously in the more recent years where he's been in the dairy industry. And we've always found him to be a very strong partner and somebody that we can work very, very well with. He's got a very strong team in place. Um, and we'll be building out that team, of course, over the coming months. And, uh, you know, I think we'll see a lot of work on COVID-19 relief at the beginning, both implementation of what's already been done, as well as uh, some new policy there. You know, we work with Secretary Vilsack very well previously on everything from the 2014 Farm Bill policy and trying to get that right and different trade issues. He's been a helpful voice on, on many different things. Um, you know, including our environmental and climate goals. The biogas opportunities roadmap was rolled out under his leadership at USDA several years ago. So I think with climate coming to the forefront this year, that's going to be really fitting and a great chance to kind of reinvigorate the debate there and uh, and have a great partner in the department. So I think, you know, certainly, as I said before, COVID and climate change are going to be kind of two right out the gate. But I think we'll be seeing, you know, hopefully action on trade where he's, he obviously understands that issue really well and will be a great voice. And then, uh, you know, different milk pricing issues that have come up in the last year, partly on account of the pandemic, we'll be working through how do we sort those out and and things like that. And then, of course, before we know, we'll be talking about the nuts and bolts of what the farm bill will look like and what kind of policy needs to be put in place, whether that's modifications or changes, uh, things like that. And I think we'll be working with the secretary on uh, on all of the above. Sounds great. Yeah. And it's great to see him back in that role after spending time with the U.S. Dairy Export Council. So we're definitely familiar with him in dairy. Uh, Now that we've got the landscape groundwork covered, I want to do kind of a rapid fire with you, Paul, on a list of topics as they relate to agricultural policy and dairy uh, in particular. So I'm going to have you cover where we've been recently, uh, what we know today to be true on this topic, and also how we anticipate that evolving in the next two years with the 117th Congress and the Biden administration. So are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. We're going to start off with the dietary guidelines for Americans. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the dietary guidelines for Americans were, were just finalized um, a, a few weeks ago, actually. So where we've been, you know, the dietary guidelines do make positive recommendations on low-fat milk and on fat-free milk, uh, not on those higher-fat varieties. And so essentially what we know what we know today is a continuation of that. Um, this was the first dietary guidelines, I think, that had the kind of healthy eating patterns broken out by, by periods of life, which will be interesting. So that's a bit of a change. 
where we're going to go from here, I think, you know, we're going to continue making the case over the next several years as we made this time, but it's a, it's a long-term project that some of that emerging science around the connection between saturated fat and heart disease, you know, has uh, been very positive from the dairy standpoint. And we were hopeful that that would have been looked at more closely in this most recent round. Unfortunately, it was not. But certainly, as we go forward, that's going to be an area that we talk about more and that we engage on with others. And uh, obviously, the dietary guidelines dictate the options that you know can be served in schools as far as milk options in schools. So as Congress potentially looks at child nutrition legislation, uh, we'll, be, we'll be playing in that space as well. Next step is labeling. Labeling. Well, if we're talking about it, one of our favorite labeling issues, which has been the um, the Food and Drug Administration's ongoing for you know, many, many decades before most of us and a lot of us have been alive, uh, refusal to enforce the dairy product standards of identity. Where we've been, we've been in the same spot for a long time. But in the more recent years, including where we are today, we've built up some pretty strong congressional support uh, in both parties for urging the FDA to simply do its job. And this is this is a public health issue for public health organizations pointed out in a statement two years ago that serving young children dairy imitators should not be considered a comparable substitute for the most part uh, to serving uh, real dairy, obviously, given that their nutrition profiles are not the same. We've made this point over and over again, and we've been glad to see it echoed. And survey data bears this out. Actually, it's you know consumers in many cases don't correctly understand the differences as far as protein levels and things like that. So where we are today is we're continuing to make that case both to FDA and to Congress. And we're fortunate that Congress has kind of heeded that call to an extent and we've been able to get some language in appropriations, budget bills, trying to direct FDA to nudge FDA to move forward. We had that a couple of years ago and we think that did play a role in, you know, then Commissioner Gottlieb starting a process. Unfortunately, that process hasn't completed or didn't really go anywhere. Uh, So we're going to continue to be pushing on that as we go forward. Certainly the Dairy Pride Act, a bipartisan bill in both chambers, is going to continue going forward to be part of our efforts there, as well efforts on on funding, trying to make sure that as we talk about enforcement needs, that if FDA comes and says, well, we don't have the money that we need to to look at this, well, then we have to sort of call that bluff and try working with our friends in Congress to to deal with that. And you touched a little bit on this already, but Fill us in on immigration. Sure. So uh, we've been in the same place for a while, unfortunately, where it's been very, very difficult to get um, to get consensus around moving legislation that would accomplish, again, those, those two major goals that we have, which is reforming the guest worker policy, uh, whether it's H-2A or anything else, so that we can use it effectively and providing that permanent legal status to our current workers and their families that we, that we very badly want to have. In recent years where we've been, we were able to make some progress. In 2013, years back, a bipartisan uh, broader bill passed the Senate that had some good provisions. And then more recently, in 2019, we had the Bipartisan Farm Workforce Modernization Act passed, and that was a more targeted ag labor bill. But as I said earlier, it really did embody those broader goals. Unfortunately, the COVID-19 pandemic hit about a year ago, and that kind of stalled our ability to work on this issue last year and get it through the Senate. So where we go from here, I think we're hopeful that the House will again pass that legislation, the Farm Workforce Modernization Act. And then as discussions play out on immigration, on DACA enrollees and some other pieces in the Senate, that maybe we can get enough uh, bipartisan support in the House to demonstrate the urgency on this issue and hopefully get something across the finish line in both chambers. Next big topic is environment and climate change. So where we've been on this one, you know, it's hard to characterize in a way because there's been a lot of discussion for the last several years and in all segments of industry, not just agriculture, but not a lot has been done in terms of policy. I think a lot of industries have been trying to undertake proactive stewardship measures on the ground, perhaps to to make up for the 
lack of of consensus on the policy side. As I noted earlier, about a year ago, we launched the Net Zero Initiative between National Milk and U.S. Dairy Export Council and Nutrient and DMI and the Innovation Center to get our carbon footprint to net zero by 2050 and deal with some water quality issues. And it's important to note on that. That doesn't mean that every single dairy farmer in the country is going to get to net zero. Some may get there before 2050, some may get there after, but it's the net basis. That's really been a launching pad for us pushing some broader policy initiatives with Capitol Hill. So where we are now, you know, we've launched this initiative. We've had legislation for a couple of years now that would create an investment tax credit for different technologies that can not only help us deal with methane emissions, but can also help us deal with water quality challenges. We've been looking carefully at what can be done to speed up FDA's process of approving different feed additives that can reduce the enteric emissions from the front of the cow, as we say. Where we're going to go from here, I think we're going to get that question answered this year, hopefully in a positive way. I think we're, we're encouraged by a lot of the interest, not just in the agriculture space, but in Congress at large and at USDA in doing some climate legislation. There's certainly talk about doing a carbon bank, if you will, at the department, and, and you know, that may be able to be done without a piece of legislation, I'm not sure. Uh, but certainly there's a lot of interest in the climate space, and, and all of the different principles of the Ag Committees have taken a great interest in this. Uh, Senator Stabenow, who chairs the Senate Ag Committee, she has a bipartisan bill with Senator Mike Braun from Indiana called the Growing Climate Solutions Act, and this is a helpful measure that pulls back some of the barriers to farmer participation in environmental markets. Uh, ranking member G.T. Thompson over on the House side, you know, he had chaired the Conservation Sub committee on the ag committee for a long time he's taken a lot of interest in conservation outcomes and what we can do to make programs work better in that direction so i think we've got people at the table uh, that hopefully will take us in a really good direction here how does uh waters of the united states fit into the the future picture maybe even the current picture where does that sit with gina mccarty serving as a domestic climate advisor so the waters of the U.S. issue, um, you know, my my initial suspicion or thought, I would say, is that you know the current administration will will take an approach that maybe would be more similar to the Obama administration, but perhaps not all the way. You know, Michael Regan, who's the EPA nominee, had some comments at his confirmation hearing where he indicated it's certainly a desire to sit down with the ag community. You know, he's been very well regarded by agriculture. We're supporting his nomination, as many others are in ag. And so I think there's a feeling there that you may have somebody that we can help uh, maybe sort out some of the issues. I think in, in a bigger picture sense, though, you know, I'll note that this issue has been kind of uh, in our dealing, not just for ag, but something we've all been dealing with for about 15 years now on a court, kind of a quirky Supreme Court ruling. And, you know, the Bush administration at the time, the second Bush administration started to deal with it. And then the Obama administration was dealing with it. And the Trump administration was dealing with it. And now it's in the Biden administration's lap. I'm of the mind, personally, as somebody who spent time in Congress, that this issue will never be solved in a durable way, going back to what I said earlier about durability of policy, until and unless Congress rolls up its sleeves on a bipartisan basis and says, we're going to decide what the policy needs to be here, we're going to provide that legislative clarity. Because when you stop and think about it, why do you sometimes have these tangos between the executive branch and the courts? It's because the policymaking branch, the legislative branch, is sort of hanging out, hiding in the bushes. And in 2006, ideally, Congress would have dealt with this when this, the court decision occurred. Of course, they did not. And they have not for a decade and a half since. Uh, you can tell from the tone of voice I'm using that I find this excruciatingly frustrating. I tried six years ago during my final year on Capitol Hill to see if I could get any consensus amongst different sectors on environmental and industry. And there were people in both camps that were wanting to talk, but there wasn't enough desire to get something across the finish line. So 
I predict a, an approach that's between the Trump approach and the Obama approach in short for the net for the moment. But I think big picture, this issue will continue just rolling downstream, pun intended, until uh, until we have a Congress that says, you know what, we're going to reauthorize or update the Clean Water Act, just like we reauthorize and update the Farm Bill. Well, fingers crossed on that one, I guess. Next topic is trade. So where we've been, this is this is an interesting one because, you know, where we've been uh, the trade is becoming more and more and more important to the dairy industry all the time. I think the, the sort of the back of the envelope stats that we tend to use are that one in every seven days worth of milk is exported. And I think it's one in every six tanker loads. So two little two little stats there. Uh, the most recent administration, the Trump administration, did take a different approach on trade than some of the past administrations in both parties. They took a more bilateral approach. Uh, they preferred bilaterals rather than multilaterals. And so they, they were able to do kind of a, a sort of a phase one agreement with Japan. And that had some positive for dairy, but not as much as we want to see there overall. They have this phase one with China. And then obviously they did revamp USMCA. Uh, now, U.S. and Canada and Mexico were all party to the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, you know, that was negotiated in 2015, but the Trump administration preferred to kind of do a more narrow focus on the, the NAFTA renegotiation. And that certainly got us some benefits on the dairy issues. And like I said earlier, we're working to get those implemented. So, you know, where we are right now, USMCA implementation is a focus. We are seeking new markets. Uh, you know, we are seeking to build on the progress we've made on the common food names issue. And we don't want to be outpaced by our competitors. I and mean, that's maybe a point worth underscoring. So where we go from here, um, you know, we are we're excited by Catherine Tai, the new uh, U.S. trade representative. We had a really productive relationship with Ambassador Lighthizer and his role under the Trump administration. I think we expect to have a similarly productive relationship with, with Ms. Tai when she's confirmed. I would imagine we'll see more of a discussion around multilaterals, obviously. But, you know, we don't know for sure until the pieces start to fall into place. I think the country is sort of grappling with the pandemic right now in, in a lot of ways before turning to some of the overseas issues and things like that. But one thing that's important is Congress does have to reauthorize trade promotion authority, which is the law that kind of allows for quick consideration uh, in Congress of trade agreements. But maybe more importantly, it provides clear congressional intent and on objectives and directives that the administration is to seek in different trade negotiations. And so that that's got to be dealt with. And when you get that legislative framework in place, you then make it much easier for the administration, whatever administration you have, to uh, to start that negotiation work of different countries. And then obviously for Congress to weigh in on the back end, too. Next is a topic that kind of came to light or more came to light during the pandemic, and that is rural broadband and other rural programs. So what's the status on those? Well, this is a, a notable one for me. One of our member co-ops at Lando Lakes has launched a coalition on rural broadband and access, and it's something we've been very active in in the last year or so. Uh, Congress in recent years has taken a lot more interest in this. There's the Reconnect program in the you know, ag appropriations cycle. There's work done on broadband in the 2018 Farm Bill. And you know, looking ahead, uh, G.T. Thompson from Pennsylvania, the ranking member you know, in the House, he represents an area where this is a major priority. And, and he's talked a lot about what do we do to repopulate rural America. This is, I think, a big part of his vision in the role that he's in. And he, he puts broadband access right at the top of that list. So I do think you're going to continue to see emphasis in this area for the moment, probably kind of an infrastructure legislation that might be talked about. But moving to the Farm Bill in a couple of years, I think this is going to be a huge topic area because I think all four of the principals of the Ag Committees are going to have a great interest in this from their different perspectives. And, you know, we don't know who will be sitting in what chair after the midterms, obviously. But I think it'll be the same four people that it is right now. And I think that this will be a big topic in the Farm Bill, both when it comes to policy and when it comes to funding. 
The next one is supply management. Since this topic seems to come up every time we have a dip in milk prices, but where is that conversation at today? You know, where we've been, obviously, in the 2014 Farm Bill, there was a very intense debate on this policy area. You know, we National Milk, we were proposing at the time to overhaul the dairy safety net and get rid of what we had before and put in place the margin protection program in tandem with a market stabilization program that we thought was going to be important to sending market signals to producers during times of low margin when supply and demand were out of balance. Uh, we, we unfortunately did not prevail in that vote in that process at the time. So that policy did not get enacted into law with the MPP. And then in the last Farm Bill, the 2018 Farm Bill, I think we saw it as imperative to put our focus on reforming the safety net because, you know, I think admittedly, obviously, coming out of the, the 2014 Farm Bill, the MPP didn't work as well as we had wanted it to. And, you know, I was a congressional staffer at the time working for a Wisconsin member of the House Ag Committee. My view on the process was a little bit that the supply management debate, if you will, took up so much of the oxygen. And maybe it was an important debate to have, and it probably was. But it did not have as much of a spotlight on let's make sure that the details of the safety net are constructed, the MPP part are constructed correctly. And I know plenty of people were working on that, but maybe it wasn't prioritized in a sense because I think there was a little bit of a feeling of, well, everybody agrees on that part. So we have to fight about the part we don't agree about. And in the end, we ended up with the part that everybody agrees on, but some of the, the kinks needed to be worked out. So I think we felt like, you know what? The viewpoint on supply management is mixed across our membership at this point, and it was as we were doing this most recent farm bill. So we decided to be laser focused on fixing MPP, which resulted in the DMC, and also work on other risk management options to make sure we've got good options for farmers of all sizes. And I think we were working with Congress. We felt really good about that outcome. So where do we go from here? Just like every other ag stakeholder, we're going to be having conversations about the new farm bill. I'm sure later this year, early next year, somewhere there, we'll reconvene our economic policy committee to start that process, just like we've done each time before, and start figuring out what do we think is working well, what do we think needs to be reformed. To your point, supply management is always going to come up in conversations when you have the, the economic situation. It's always going to be part of the conversation. The question to me is... Is there enough consensus across the industry, across the different segments of dairy to actually implement something on a national scale? I'm, I'm skeptical personally. You saw some discussions in the last couple of years around diversion and milk balancing and things like that, and ultimately didn't get enough traction because sometimes you'll have a case where it's like federal order issues. One region of the country will want something and another won't. And Congress has to kind of hash through all of that. And there's only one dairy safety net program, right? There's only one dairy title of the Farm Bill. And so you can't have a one title for each state. So it does make for does make for a challenge in getting consensus there. So I'm skeptical, but we'll see where the road ahead takes us. Okay, so one of the things that you've mentioned quite a bit moving through all these topics is COVID-19, of course. What do the relief programs look like now moving forward with CFAP and all of the different programs that have impacted dairy? Sure. So where we've been, you know, in the last year, we had the coronavirus food assistance program, kind of a direct payment program that was very helpful to producers. Um, and we had the Farmers to Families Food Box program. Now, the Food Box program obviously moved a lot of product uh, to food insecure households. It did have the challenge, though of impacting dairy farm prices in an interesting way because it purchased a lot of cheese and comparatively on class four on butter, you know, not so much. And so you ended up with a spread that made the class one price a a bit of a challenge for us in the last year. So we've been working through, okay, well, how do we deal with that issue going forward? Not just looking backward. 
where we are right now, obviously we've had a new administration come in. So there's a little bit of a pause right now as Secretary Vilsack gets confirmed and they kind of take stock of everything and what their options are and what's been done by Congress recently, where we're going to go. I think, like I said, you're going to see a focus on implementation of this recent package, which is going to include the dairy donation program. That's a big priority for us. Supplemental dairy margin coverage payments, things like that. There's some other directives on dairy policy in that $11 billion fund. And then Congress is passing another bill as we speak. So there may be some additional funding to kind of top that off, which could be very helpful for purchases and donations and things of that nature. And after that package, you know, we'll see. Obviously, President Biden articulated goals around getting as many people vaccinated as possible over the coming months. So you know, the, the vaccine obviously has provided somewhat of a light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, and the light at the end of the tunnel is great, but we still have to get through the tunnel. Uh, so we'll see where we are in the next few months. But I know the you know, the administration is clearly making this a top priority, I think, to recover the whole country, uh, not just ag, but certainly everybody. So I think we're, you know, hopefully we go as quickly through this as we can That's in terms of where we go from here. So you, you mentioned this briefly with the federal milk marketing orders and how the donations and the food boxes impacted that pricing and what farmers are receiving. Is Do you want to explain that a little bit more, Paul? And then also, are we anticipating that to have a similar impact with the new relief programs moving forward and more donation parts of COVID relief? Uh, so I'll, I'll go in reverse. Not sure going forward because it'll depend on what they set up and we don't, we don't kind of know what that'll look like. But I think in terms of what happened, you know, a couple of years ago, the class one mover calculation was was changed. So rather than taking the higher of class three or class four, you instead you, you average them together and you add 74 cents to that average. And, you know, the, the spread between the two was significant last year in many cases. And obviously, you had the negative producer price differentials in, in different federal orders at different points. And so be, because of that spread, because of the, the challenge there, you know, a lot of you know, farmers lost a lot of class one revenue because the on account of the change in the mover, payments were, were reduced, right? The, the, the number was a lot lower than it would have been. Even when you add that 74 cents to the average, it wasn't enough to get back to the higher of. And, you know, when this was implemented at the time, a couple of years ago, I think we thought, you know, on the long run, this will balance out. This is something that will be more or less a wash and in many cases a net positive. And our, and our data bore that out the first few months in 2019 when it was implemented that farmers did get additional revenue from it. Problem was, you know, the pandemic situation was something that none of us could have foreseen. And so what it's prompting us now is discussions in the dairy sector of both, okay, how do we help farmers recoup the losses from this last year? But from a more methodical standpoint, you know, how do we maybe structure this in a way going forward so that we don't repeat the problem? So those are discussions ongoing within our membership, with our friends over at the International Dairy Foods Association on the processing side, trying to figure out, you know, is there uh, is there a, a way forward on this issue that might be a, a, a better arrangement than we have right now? But that's all still in, in the works. So the last topic on my list is the 2023 Farm Bill. So where we've where we've been, uh, you know, the last Farm Bill, I think, was pretty successful for dairy, as I said, and the dairy margin coverage program was much improved. And, you know, a lot of people played a role in that. Senator Stabenow, former chairman of the House Ag Committee, Colin Peterson, uh, he was a great champion there. G.T. Thompson, quite a few people were really, really active in helping us get that put together. You know, it was implemented in 2019 by the department. But importantly, in addition to what was done on DMC, the, the last farm bill also gave us much better options on the crop insurance side, better access now when it comes to programs like uh, livestock gross margin dairy, the revenue protection program that was created a couple of years ago, 
the work in the Farm Bill and the Bipartisan Budget Act really enabled that space to flourish and those programs to flourish in dairy. And sometimes those are very beneficial for larger producers. I think DMC provides good catastrophic type coverage to farmers of all sizes, and and every farmer can get a, a coverage up to you know, their you know first five million pounds of production history on that tier one at the nine fifty. And we always encourage folks to look really carefully at that because it's a good option. And you never know, as we've seen in the last year, you never know what a year is going to turn out to be. So we really do encourage that. Where we go uh, you know, from here, because where we are right now, we're kind of in between farm bills, I suppose. Where we go from here, I think, like I said, you know, later this year, maybe early next year, we'll start our process, as I think most ag stakeholders will, of looking at you know, internally what do we think is working well and what do we think needs to be improved. And then we'll take that to Congress. And I think next year, you know, once the pandemic uh, hopefully passes us by, uh, Congress will have some initial hearings, probably you know, they have field hearings sometimes the year before the Farm Bill where they go out in different parts of the country and they talk to producers and they talk to stakeholders and uh, and they get feedback, you know, that both the House and Senate Ag Committees did this in the run up to the 2012 Farm Bill a little bit and uh, or became the 2014, I should say, but that, that whole process. And that's an information gathering uh, part of the process. You know, after that, that's you know, we'll have the midterm election and then we'll see who the chairs and the ranking members are. Like I said earlier, I think it'll be the same four people that it is right now. We just don't know who will hold the gavel, who will be the ranking and all that. Tends not to matter as much as it might in other committees because the ag committees are very bipartisan that even when you have republican chair democratic chair they work really together they work really well together there are always hiccups along the way especially sometimes in the house side but you know but by and large they, they do really function as a quartet of partners and so i think that geographic spread that i described of michigan and pennsylvania and arkansas and georgia will give you an idea of who's going to be in the room uh, crafting a lot of that. So that process will play out over 2023, hopefully. Um, sometimes farm bills need to be you know, extended a little bit, so you know, it goes into 2024. But that's kind of the, the road ahead of us. And I think a lot remains to be seen as to the political climate, the budgetary climate that we're in. Obviously, the 2014 farm bill, the name of the game was saving money. The 2018 farm bill was more of a baseline bill. So we'll see where we're headed. Well, that is a lot of information. Are there other topics that we didn't cover that you see playing a major role uh, in the dairy landscape? You know, I think we just about covered everything. Uh, the, the one that I, I only mentioned in passing, but I'll mention it, that could play out in this next two year period is reauthorization of the child nutrition programs. Uh, you know, the dietary guidelines kind of dictate that. But obviously, we've been focused for a while on making sure that as many um, you know milk varieties are offered in schools or permitted to be offered in schools as the dietary guidelines will allow. And then on the separate track, continuing to engage in that broader public discourse and debate about the science and things like that. So that will be a uh, that'll be a, a priority in this next two year period as well. That is a perfect point to wrap all this up with then. I appreciate your time, Paul. Thank you for joining us on The Dairy Show. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Dairy Show. We hope you enjoyed it. And don't forget to hit like and subscribe wherever you are listening to us today. And of course, don't forget to tell your friends about how much you are enjoying The Dairy Show. We would love to have them join us as well. And last but not least, if you have any comments for us, send us an email at wde at wdexpo.com. We would love to hear from you. 